And at that point in my life, I did not know any other gay people. I did not know any transgender people. I, you know, I had heard of Ellen DeGeneres and Elton John, but that was really the extent of my knowledge of anything queer. And so the fact that there was someone who existed in my state that my grandma had known and that people loved was just like revolutionary to me. Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson, and from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. These days, Casey Parks is a successful journalist for the Washington Post. But 20 years ago, she was a teenager in Louisiana, struggling with her sexuality. She felt alone. Then she heard about Roy Hudgens, her grandmother's neighbor from 60 years ago. As her grandmother put it, Hudgens was a woman who lived as a man. Park spent much of the next two decades piecing together Hudgens' story, often from people who are unwilling to talk, at least at first. Along the way, Parks began to untangle her own life story and the troubled relationship she had with family members especially her mother. All that work found its way into Parks' new book out this week called Diary of a Misfit. Casey Parks made me laugh a lot in this interview, but she also said some things that rang deep and true with me about how the South can be so hard on people who feel like outsiders and how those outsiders can love the South anyway. If you're one of those outsiders, or if you love somebody who is, I think you'll get a lot out of this. Here's our conversation. Before I get into the meat of what this book is that you've written, I want to start with the place name, because it just makes me laugh every time I think about it. So the place where most of this book is set is a town in Louisiana that's spelled D-E-L-H-I, like the Indian city, Delhi. But how is it pronounced? It's pronounced Delhi. And I actually knew about Delhi long before I knew about Delhi. And so I think when I first learned about the place in India, I think I even started off by calling it Delhi. Very rednecky of me. I, I think there, there could be like a whole, we could do a whole podcast on like southern towns that they spell, that they pronounce wrong. You know, like in Georgia, where I grew up, there's um, Cairo, like the city in Egypt, but they pronounce it Cairo. And then there's another town. <laughs> like Cairo, sir. Yeah, like Cairo. In fact, the, the the high school football team is the syrup makers. It's great. And then in outside Augusta, where I used to live, there's a town that's spelled Martinez, but they pronounce it Martinez. And so I just thought there's just something about those foreign names, we just got to southernify them. We can't, we can't make them like, like those foreigners have them, you know. I actually just had a, a back and forth with the producers of my audio book because there's a body of water that runs through Dale High, and they call it the Bayou Mason, but it's spelled like Macon, Georgia. And so when I I got the notes back to do pickups for my audio book, the producer said, "You mispronounced Macon. It's pronounced Macon, rhyming with bacon." And I said, no, like everyone there said Mason, like I'm not going against what people told me. And that wasn't actually good enough for the producer. So 
we had to, the engineer and I had to go online and look for evidence that it was pronounced Mason. And we actually found like all of these really old country songs where it was pronounced Mason. So we sent back to Penguin Random House this just document of people saying Mason. <laughs> and it was so fun to put together because I, you know, you start to doubt yourself when these big institutions tell you you're pronouncing something wrong. Actually, also, they sent back in the first redrafts telling me that I mispronounced Baptist. And they were saying, you said B-A-B-D-I-S. You need to pronounce it B-A-P-T-I-S-T. And I was like, there's no one I know who says Baptist. Like, I'll sound like a Yankee if I say that. I say Baptist, and everyone else I know says Baptist, so I have to say Baptist. Yeah, you're saying it correctly. Um, so, so the main thread of this book is about a guy who you hear about named Roy Hudgens. Could you just tell the story of how you first heard about him and kind of what the context was of that? Yeah, so way back in 2002, when I was 18, I came out as a lesbian to my family. And my family did not really take kindly to that. My mom would send me letters to college telling me that thinking of me made her want to throw up. And the pastor of my church prayed. His prayer was basically, save her and take her. And the idea is that I would ask forgiveness and then die immediately so I could go to heaven. And so I had gone home the the summer after my first year of college to try to prove I wasn't evil. And everything kind of came to a head at this 4th of July lunch one day where an uncle had told me, God had destroyed an entire nation to get rid of homosexuality, so why wouldn't he destroy me? And my mom ran to the bathroom crying, and um, she and I had kind of a long, intense talk. And afterward, my grandma pulled me aside and said, I grew up across the street from a woman who lived as a man. And she said that with just no judgment at all, just kind of matter of fact. And I said... Well, did did people know? Like, what did people think? And she said, his name was Roy, and honey, everybody loved Roy because he was a good Christian person. And at that point in my life, I did not know any other gay people. I did not know any transgender people. I, you know, I had heard of Ellen DeGeneres and Elton John, but that was really the extent of my knowledge of anything queer. And so the fact that there was someone who existed in my state that my grandma had known and that people loved was just like revolutionary to me. It it made me feel like there is a historical context for me and there is a future for me. And my grandmother at the time had only a couple of details about him. She told me that as far as she knew, he had been kidnapped as a little girl and then raised as a boy. She she had known him when she was a, a young teenager, and then she had kind of moved around a lot because my grandfather was in the Army, and so she'd lost touch with Roy. And so that day, you know, I was already, I already knew I wanted to be a journalist. I wasn't a great journalist at 18. I had very few skills, but I think she believed in my journalism skills, and so she told me, like, I want you to go to Delhi and find out what happened to Roy. And she essentially just set me down on this path. She's like, there's someone who's vaguely like you, and there's a mystery attached, so why don't you go learn about them? 
And oh, by the way, I, I guess in the in the book, I think you end up just referring to Roy as he. Uh, we I guess we can't really know what Roy would have preferred at the time, but from here on out, I mean, I, I assume that's kind of how we will speak about him. I know at the time, it's clear in the book that you have all these mixed feelings about your coming out and what it's done, you know, what, how your family's reacted and all that sort of thing. Did you hope that you would find something about Roy that would sort of give you permission to be gay? Or is, is that the wrong way of thinking about it? No, I think when I was 18, I probably was seeking permission. I was seeking any kind of community. I was seeking less just permission to be gay, but to be gay in the South. Because already by then, I knew that places like Portland existed. That's where I live now. And I already was kind of thinking, I don't know if I'm going to be able to stay here and date girls. And at that point, I had kissed one girl, and that kind of... After I kissed the one girl, I knew I did not want to kiss boys anymore. <laughs> so I, it kind of was like, all right, do I stay here and never get to experience that again? Or do I leave and, like, get to date and be happy? And the fact that my grandmother said everyone loved Roy made me think, well, maybe my pastor is just an outlier. Maybe my mother is just an outlier. Maybe there is this place where... I can still have my home, but also be myself. Without getting into too much of the detail, the search to find out more about Roy is, in the book, very painful and frustrating. You know, there's people who don't know much about him. There's people who maybe know a lot about him, but aren't saying. You're still learning how to talk to people, and you're sort of shy and awkward and all this. Did it feel as sort of frustrating and painful and sort of stilted as you were doing it as it sort of comes off in the book? Oh, it probably felt worse. You know, years ago, when I was a young journalist, I saw Jackie Bonashinsky speak somewhere, and she was one of my favorite journalists. You know, she won a Pulitzer back in the 80s for a profile of two gay farmers. And somebody in the crowd asked her, what's the hardest part of being a journalist? And, you know, this to me is like, this is a confident woman who is just a badass. And her reply was, getting out of the car. And at the time, it really scared me because I thought, oh, no, like if Jackie's still afraid to get out of the car, what's going to happen to me? Now that I'm older, I find it very comforting to be like, okay, if Jackie's scared to get out of the car, it's fine for me to be scared to get out of the car. But it was much worse there because not only did I have to get out of the car and do journalism, which is always scary, but I had to do it looking like I do, which is a kind of boyish girl. I got short hair and I don't wear makeup and I don't dress very feminine. And then I had to ask about someone who very much looked like a guy. And so I felt like everyone was going to know it was a personal reason that I was asking these questions. I thought people were going to condemn me to hell or people would run me out of town. And I thought that maybe people had something to hide and I wasn't yet brave enough to push people when they tried to hide things. For most of the time I was reporting the book, I was in my 20s. And I was much more of like a 
light features reporter at that time. I didn't know how to do investigations. I didn't know how to play hardball with people. And also, these were mostly private citizens. You know, they weren't dignitaries who deserved to be, like, raked over the coals or anything. And so I just... I spent a lot of time on those trips just trying to psych myself up to call people or go knock on doors. Did you feel like your accent helped at all? I'm wondering if you had come from Portland and you sounded like Portland, if it would have been different than coming from Portland and sounding like Louisiana. You know, when I'm in Portland and interview people, people always think I have a big accent. But uh, I don't think in Louisiana I have as thick of one. Like, everyone in my family has a thicker one than I do. And I've actually leaned into it a lot more over the years. When I was in my early 20s, I think I really tried not to have an accent because I kind of bought into this national narrative that if you sound Southern, you must be dumb. And the older I get, the more I can just say, no, that's classist and regionalist and I'm going to talk how I want to talk. So I might have had even a little bit less of an accent at that point. But no, I think most people took one look at me and and thought, out of town. (laughs) Something that becomes clear in the book is that you persevere in trying to figure out Roy's story. I think long after most people would have given up. I mean, it takes a long time for you to get to the end of this book. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, it just takes years for everything to play out. So why why do you think you persevered so long? That is a good question. I certainly did not intend to, and if you had told me at the beginning, I really my grandmother told me this story in 2002. I did some of my first interviews for it in 2008, then really started in earnest in 2009. So if you had told me 2008, 2009, this isn't going to be done until 2022. Like, I would have just said, no way I can do that. Um, I think part of why I persevered is the story changed for me over the years. As I grew older, my relationship to Roy changed. Even though he was dead by the time I started reporting, I came to understand him in different ways as I became older and met other gay and trans people. My relationship to the South changed a lot over those years. I think when I first left, I was really fleeing. And in the first couple of trips I took, I was very timidly going home and just starting to reckon with the ways home had hurt me. And by the end, I was a little bit more brash and just also in a deeper understanding of myself of the ways it had hurt me. So there's just all of these different ways into the book, I think. I kind of describe it to people as a fruit salad of every Southern issue. And so when I would get bored of one, I could go, you know, learn about another for a little bit. So much of this book ends up being about the relationship between you and your mother. And it's unfair to ask you to describe her in this podcast because we're only going to have so much time. But I was trying to figure out a way to ask it ask that question about, and I'll ask it this way. If I was, didn't know anything about her and we were coming up to the house and I was about to meet her for the first time, what would you tell me? My mom was brash. She was very loud and charismatic. She loved Jesus and she loved to cuss. She was a great dancer. She also was very troubled. 
um, when she was in a good place, she could be the most brilliant light. But I would say more times than not, she was very depressed. She really struggled with an addiction to an opiate nose spray called Stadol and also various pain pills. That started back in the early 80s, and at that time, we didn't have the context that people have now. We, there was no opioid ed- epidemic to talk about. There was, I, don't even, I didn't even know the word opioid. Like, my brother and I just called it taking medicine. But when she would take those medicines, her eye would droop and her mouth would droop, and she would turn mean and just kind of vacant. You know, over the course of the book, with her too, I came to see her as a product of her times. Like, she had me as a teenager in the early 1980s during the big oil bust. And at that time, like, Louisiana's economy was like 60% oil. And so when the price of oil tanked, all of the jobs in Louisiana went away. Like, I talked to the state economist at some point, and he told me so many people left Louisiana in those years that they ran out of U-Hauls. And I just didn't under, you know, I knew we were poor. And when I was growing up, I always thought that's because my parents made bad decisions. But there were just historical factors and um, forces at work on her life, I think. So I think she was someone who had a lot of potential and a lot of personality, but was hamstrung both by things inside her and outside of her. I get the impression from your book that it was very hard to predict what version of her you would get at any particular time. Yeah, I I do think we kind of tossed around the word bipolar. I don't think she was ever diagnosed with that, and I have no idea if she had it, but I think that was a way my brother and I had of understanding her at the time because she was so manic. Like, her highs were really high, and her lows were really low. There was no in-between mom. She was never just chill, and... You know, she always did seem like a character in a book. Like, when I was researching this, I went back and looked at all of my college emails. And way back in the early 2000s, I wrote to a friend that I was going to write a book about my mother someday. Like, I knew she was interesting, for good or for bad, you know. But um, she was just a big, a big force. It's always been interesting to me, as somebody who does this for a living, that you can ask strangers questions that you have a hard time asking your own family. And you get to know things about strangers that you still don't know about your own family. Did you feel like you sort of stumbled on a greater sense of knowledge about these people you grew up with because you were doing this other story that sort of touched on their lives in a tangential way? Absolutely. I would say that is my main takeaway from this process. I realized early on, I mean, I started by just interviewing my grandmother a lot. And I would start by trying to talk to her about Roy. But if we were talking about Roy, we were always actually talking about my grandma. She would, I'd ask her one question and she'd say, oh no, we got to start 15 years before that when I was a little girl. And I'm like, that has nothing to do with this, but it actually did, you know. I realized in some of those early trips, I don't know how to talk to my grandmother unless I'm treating her like a source. I know how to talk to sources. I know how to ask strangers anything. But I am scared to ask my family stuff. 
unless I'm pretending I'm Casey the journalist. Casey the granddaughter cannot talk, is super nervous and embarrassed, but Casey the journalist can just ask, you know, anything intimate. I wanted to do that with my mom, but I was scared for much of the time I was reporting this. In part because, as you said, I never knew which mom I was going to get. Sometimes she would show up and she'd be willing to talk. And sometimes she would tell me she was going to come on a trip. And then at the last second, she would put herself in the hospital. And so I kind of walled myself off to her in order to not be hurt by her. But as the years went on and I started to include her in this book... I kind of set aside my view of her as my mother and started thinking about her as someone that I'm writing about and just started researching her the way I would a stranger, like pulling every document that I could of her, listening to all of the in-between things she said to me. Like I had, she went on my very first trip with me and I taped the whole thing. And when I was there in person with her at 26, 27, I didn't ask her any follow-up questions. She would tell me, my boyfriend died by suicide, and, you know, I want to go see his tombstone. And I wouldn't ask any follow-up questions. I would be like, that's not why we're here. But then when I was 36, 37, and going back to look at the tape, I saw, oh, my gosh, like, this is super interesting. Like, I wanted to shake 26-year-old Casey and be like, ask a follow-up question. But I could just, you know in the comfort of my own home with my computer all calmly I could just sit and listen to her and like actually hear her in ways that I couldn't way back then when we come back Casey Parks talks about how moving to Portland was a radical change from her life in the south I had never eaten a fresh vegetable before I moved here not once I had eaten canned peas and canned green beans I don't think I'd even actually eaten frozen vegetables. I thought broccoli cheese soup was a vegetable. I mean, I guess it kind of is. Um, I interrupted people all the time. I still, my preferred mode of communication is everyone interrupting each other. That and more ahead on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Casey Parks. So this book is called Diary of a Misfit, and that's uh, I guess a version of the way Roy wrote about himself, but you know, I, I, I think without you saying it, it's pretty clear that there's more than one misfit in this book. Um, and so I, I'm wondering, actually, if you thought kind of everybody in the book ends up being a misfit in one way or the other. Certainly, you felt 
out of place back in Louisiana. Your mom at times felt like she didn't belong. There was some, always something going on about her family was kind of looked down on in that town. Your grandmother kind of felt the same way. Did you feel like all these folks that you encountered sort of felt like misfits in one way or another? Definitely. When I started, I thought, I'm the only one in the world who's ever felt lonely and misplaced in Louisiana. (laughs) (laughs) And... You know, my mom, in the very first trip we took, kept telling me that she was scared to go back to her hometown because people looked down on her. And I kind of thought, like, okay, whatever, you're exaggerating. I didn't want to hear her pain because I was so into my own pain. And as I got older, you know, I could go back and see, wow, this actually was really painful for her. And she did it because I I asked her to. And I can see in the video just, like, how painful it is for her. My grandmother certainly felt like a misfit because when she moved to Delhi, even though it only has 2,000 people, she thought of it as the big city because she'd grown up basically in a swamp picking cotton, and she felt very uneducated, very countryfied, like all of her dresses were made out of flower sacks. She didn't have any real clothes. And there are other people I met along the way that I interviewed, just townspeople that would kind of lead with their pain. I don't know if they'd all been sitting around waiting for someone to come and ask them, like, how are you a misfit in this town? But I think people all related to Roy in a way because they also saw themselves through a lens of pain. I mean, even people you wouldn't expect, like I interviewed this Pentecostal woman And she felt like a misfit in this town because her son had died and no one knew how to talk to her about her son's death. There was a person I thought of as a lesbian at the time, though I think they may be a bit more on a path of of seeing themselves as trans, but that person definitely felt like a misfit. They were, their mom kicked them out when they were a teenager for dating girls and they were they came back to take care of their mom and they were still sharing a house with their mom in their 50s, but their mom still refused to allow them to date even though they were like 55 and owned the house. And, you know, that person hadn't kissed anyone in 20 years, so I think they still felt like a misfit. I just kind of came away from this town thinking probably everyone except the state senator in this town thinks of themselves as a misfit and thinks society has forgotten them and they're alone. I know this is not exclusive to the South in any way, but your book made me think about whether one of the reasons Southerners always seem to have sort of a chip on their shoulder as opposed to the rest of the country is that we feel like we don't fit in somehow. Like the rest of the country sort of looks down on us for very good reason in some cases and for no good reason in other cases. But we feel like we're different, like we're a misfit in this country as well yeah I think people felt I think people down there especially the ones I talked to felt misunderstood they felt undervalued they this town in particular like a lot of small towns has really been left behind by the modern economy in the course of my reporting it they did get a sweet potato factory come to town but otherwise there were no new jobs One huge source of contention for people there is that the railroad no longer, the trains no longer stopped in town. There were no stores. There there wasn't a Walmart. Um, And that just made people feel like 
no one in this country cares about us. We're, we're economically behind. You know, I reported most of this pre-Trump, and so there, there wasn't a direct line from those feelings to the politics. We didn't talk about that, really. But I could see all of that in, in those early days of just feeling like we loved this place and no one loved us back. Did you feel that sort of southernness intensely when you first moved out to Portland? Did it, did people bring it up or did you feel self-conscious about it? When I first moved to Portland, I I really did not fit in. And I had never really been out of the South, really not even for a vacation. So I didn't understand how much of my behavior was Southern. Some of it, I think, was also like a class issue. Like I, I came from a really poor background, so I did not know how to act, quote unquote, right. I had never eaten a fresh vegetable before I moved here. Not once. I had eaten canned <laughs> peas and canned green beans. I don't think I'd even actually eaten frozen vegetables. I thought broccoli cheese soup was a vegetable. I mean, I guess it kind of is. <laughs> Um, I interrupted people all the time. I still, my preferred mode of communication is everyone interrupting each other, but (laughs) that's not how it is in the South. People, I still get told all the time that I'm way too direct, but that's just how I grew up. Like everyone says exactly what they think. And it made me feel like there was something wrong with me for my first couple of years here. Like I just felt very low class and uncouth and... It was hard because I felt like, wow, I don't belong in Louisiana because I'm gay. And so I've moved out here to the gayest city on earth and I don't fit in because I don't know how to act. And I don't know what an artichoke is. And I've never tasted lamb before. It took a long time for me to, to know how to do any of those things. And then a long time after that for me to come back and say, no, it's okay for me to act how I how I grew up acting. I mean, it's good to eat some vegetables. But it's okay for me to be direct. It's okay for me to bring you food if you're sick. It's okay for me to smile at you in the street. It does not mean I'm up in your business. And then, and honestly, it's okay for me to be up in your business. Like, we could all use a little bit more humanity. I mean, that's one of the things that kind of irks me sometimes is that people think, oh, the South is this really hateful place. It's also a lot more human sometimes than I think Portland can be. Like, there is something very warm and touching about when you're in the elevator with people, they talk to you. If I ride the elevator with people in Portland, like, no one is going to say hi. They're not going to look at you. We're going to all pretend you don't exist. And I, I actually just miss that regular acknowledgement of humanity, even if the Southerners can disagree on the bigger things. Like, it's nice when you walk down the street for someone to wave at you and just say, I see you're alive and like, I'm going to acknowledge that and send some bit of kindness to you, you know? I did this podcast with Tressie McMillan Cottom a few weeks ago and she was talking about this disconnect that at the moment we were talking about white people have where they can love and care about an individual and then turn right around and dismiss and demoralize a group. And it made me think about, as I was reading your book, you know, the people in this town and people around Roy, by and large, seem to love him and care for him. 
But if you had asked many of them how they felt about gay people or trans people or, or whatever, their, their actions would have shown otherwise. And um, I, I guess I'm sure you saw and felt that disconnect too. Because people loved you. At the same time, they're telling you, you're going to go to hell, right? Yeah. I, you know, I have some members of my family who are very mega, but all are very kind to me and will even ask me like about my dating life and stuff. I do think sometimes the antidote is personal relationships and that's how progress is won. But I also think Roy lived in a time where being transgender was not the political identity that it is now. I think people were like, well, that that's just Roy. They didn't have the Heritage Foundation or the Alliance Defending Freedom setting up lawsuits all over the country and telling them this is how you should feel. I mean, it, Pew just came out with a report a couple of weeks ago showing that over the last 20 years, Christians have grown in their hatred of transgender people. Like 20 years ago, it was only like 60% of evangelicals who were against trans people, and now it's 90%. So there is something where you have more exposure that there is an uprise in hate, but I think eventually that will probably reverse some as people have members of their family come out or they their coworkers, and they begin to see, well, I thought this group was all terrible, but actually I kind of like Joe, and maybe it's not so bad, or maybe I can get used to it. You know, I mean, I think... I have been that person for people in my family. I mean, I was that for my parents. Um, I think some of that personal connection, too, allows people to see that you can have a somewhat regular life, that you can still be a kind person and not a quote-unquote deviant, that you can be happy. It just takes people bravely showing themselves, which not everyone is is cut out to do that or has the emotional fortitude to do that. But yeah, I think I I think it'll eventually get there. Did you ever think about sort of the time travel version of the story? Like what would happen if Roy was born when you were born? Or what would happen if what it, your life had been like had you been around when Roy was around? Oh, I think about that all of the time. I mean... Not only was I researching Roy while I was doing this book, I was talking to PK, who's named Pam in my book, but PK is about 60 and is still living in Delhi and just grew up in a really different time than I did and didn't have all of those opportunities. Not only to date, but just to live a full life. Like, Roy wrote poems and, and country songs and, and wanted to play them professionally and tried to sell tapes. But I think because he was so isolated in other ways, he wasn't really allowed to live out all of his creative dreams. But I, I have been, you know, like I get to do the job that I grew up dreaming I would get to do. And I, in part, I'm able to do that because I'm not constantly thinking about how miserable I am that I'm being persecuted for being gay. Like, I live in a place where, I mean, our governor is bisexual. The next governor is probably going to be a lesbian. Like, we rule this place. <laughs> you know, it's it's no big deal that I'm a lesbian. I'm one of tens of thousands of lesbians here, so I can just do the rest of my life. And I don't know that Roy got to the point where he could do the rest of his life. Last thing, it's 
becomes clearer throughout the book that this South that you fled from, you know, didn't have much affection for years ago. Every time you come back, it's pulling you a little closer. And I'm wondering what those things are that pulled you closer. And do you think now you could live that life in Louisiana? And would you want to? You know, when I was growing up, I never imagined living anywhere other than the South. I don't know that I even conceptualized that there were places outside of the South. It wasn't until my family and my church turned against me that I began to think I have to live somewhere else. Actually, in college, I used to do a little zine, and the whole point of it was showing that the South was awesome and that we had great musicians, great art, and there were people who were open-minded. It really wasn't until... I just kept getting kind of beaten down for being gay that I thought I have to go somewhere else. And I, it was painful for me, but I kind of just made myself tough at that point and started to think, well, I don't care about the South. Like, I'm going to go out West and live free. And I kind of lied to myself for a couple of years and thought, I don't care. But there's, when I go home, I mean, it's simple things, you know, like the way the air smells. I love being hot. I I live somewhere now where it rains eight to nine months of the year. That's not my vibe. <laughs> like, I love the sun. Um, I love crawfish. I wish I could just eat crawfish all spring long. Um, like I said, I love when people talk to you in the street. I love how most people can dance <laughs> in the South. And people are not good dancers in Portland. Um, it's just... You know, your cousins as soon as you meet sometimes in the South. And I love that connection. And so, consequently, like, I'm often trying to see how I can get my bosses to pay for me to go do stories in the South so that I can go take visits there. I actually really considered moving to New Orleans somewhat recently. I got a divorce and had been living in New York and was trying to decide whether to move back to Portland or to move to New Orleans. But it was like smack dab in the early days of the pandemic. And I was kind of scared that people in Louisiana wouldn't wear masks. And I didn't know if I wanted to try to build a whole new life with new friends in the middle of a pandemic. And so I kind of tabled it and thought, I'll come back to this. So I don't know. I mean, there's, I was just in New Orleans a couple months ago, and there's definitely still that pull of, this place feels right to me in some way. And like, I have to come back and face this at some point before I die. So I, I think I will do it. I just don't know exactly when. Because it is, I have to say, it's it's easy to live in Oregon. And I've lived a lot of hard stuff in my life. So sometimes it's nice to just have easy Roy Hutchins is not here to tell us just how hard his life must have been. Casey Parks' book does an amazing job of unearthing what there is to know about him. But the dead can only tell us so much. We do know two things. Roy's life was surely way harder than Casey Parks' life has been. And Casey Parks' life has been way harder than it needed to be. I think people who grew up in more progressive places, including a lot of big cities in the South, 
can't imagine how hard it is to grow up gay in a place where everybody knows everybody's business and the Baptist church is the biggest building in town. Parks' church rejected her. Some of her family members disowned her. She escaped so she could live as the person she really is. And yet, the South still pulls her back home. That has been the eternal mystery of this place for me. The engine that drives this podcast. The thing I think about as much as anything else. Why do we love the South when so often it does not love us back? And how do we make it better? Casey Parks has part of the answer, I think. It can happen one person at a time, one story at a time. Some of the people in her book had the experience of knowing Roy Hudgens, a kind and decent soul who was also trans. That's one. And now, some of those same people know Casey Parks, a funny and smart and loving soul who's also gay. That's two. And that, to be honest, should be more than enough. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. Thanks for listening.